Hello, well-being friends. Welcome to the Path to Well-Being in Law podcast, an initiative of the Institute for Well-Being in Law. I'm your co-host, Chris, Chris Newbold, Executive Vice President of Alps Malpractice Insurance. And as you know, our goal here on the podcast is, is to introduce you to thought leaders doing meaningful work in the well-being space uh, within the legal profession and in the process build and nurture a national network of well-being advocates intent on creating a culture shift within the profession. Uh, I'm very excited to be welcomed by my co-host, Bree Buchanan. Bree, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing great, Chris. It's great to be back with you. We've taken a little break. It, it is. We are he- heading into the holidays here. Bree, I think you and I have been a, on a little bit of a almost a three-month hiatus from the from the podcast, but that does not mean that we have not been busy and active on the well-being front. And I thought we'd take a couple of minutes here in the beginning just to kind of talk about some of the things, uh, Bree, that are kind of happening on the at the national level, particularly with respect to the Institute for Well-Being and Law. Absolutely, Chris. And yeah, the the absence of us from the podcast actually indicates that we've been very busy in the kitchen <laughs> cooking up and creating this new uh, national think tank. And so over the past couple of months, we have done amazing things. We've constituted and oriented a 21-member advisory board of some of the best minds around the country in the, the well-being movement. We've also opened up applications for our committee structure. And God, we had so many, so much interest. It was amazing. Um, that we there were actually people that we had to turn away from. And we now have um, over 110 people on our committees. So we have really uh, sort of filled out uh, the, the, the people that are working on this movement. And it's, and it's exciting to have so many new folks on board and a little scary too. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's fair to say that, you know, again, as the as the topic of well-being continues to take on, uh, you know, it's been in the national forefront for quite a while, but I think one of the things as leaders that we've been looking to do is to welcome more leaders and ambassadors into the movement. And boy, it was just, I know it was heartwarming for me to see the level of, of, of individuals out there around the country and oftentimes uh, worldwide who are kind of saying, I, I, want, I want to be part of this. I want to engage uh, in it. And, and when you put out a call for volunteers to kind of join the movement, the, the fact that we had over a hundred responses certainly to me indicated that, uh, again, there are folks that really want to work on this issue. Uh, and we are certainly, uh, encouraging, uh, both them to do that and for us to continue to, to, to join the movement. Uh, and there's lots of different ways to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that's an indicator of what's going on, um, our first annual conference, which is going to be virtual. Yeah. Is big deal, huh? Big deal. <laughs> it is January 19th. Through the 21st, um, three days, three tracks, pricing, so people can pick a day or pick the whole thing. And again, just like with the committees, we put out the, the um, RFP and we got so many people wanting to be a part, to a presenter at the conference. I know it was incredibly difficult to choose. And so I think that bodes well also just um, for the quality of what we're going to end up having. So I, if people are listening to this, please go check out our website at uh, lawyerwellbeing.net and register because it's it's coming up. By the time you're hearing this, it's around the corner. Yeah, let's say that one more time. So lawyerwellbeing.net. I mean, I think that is really our the 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 the, the, the welcoming mat to our to the, to the movement. And again, there's still opportunities in there to you know, fill out and join the movement to learn more about, uh, you know, news and resources going on around the country, the, uh, the, the, the conference that's coming up in, in January. Uh, many of the folks and listeners of this podcast are also very actively involved in uh, Wellbeing Week in Law, which was another uh, great success back in, in May. And so, you know, as we, you know, Bree and I very much take pride in the fact that we, you know, we're, we're a little bit facilitating and, and being dot connectors of, of the movement. And I think that is the glue that kind of still keeps uh, this movement together. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, let's, let's get into uh, the, the podcast today. And, and today I want to circle back to the influence of research and scholarship in the realm of well-being. And, and we're really excited to uh, welcome 
uh, Professor Terry Maroney from Vanderbilt University, who uh, specifically has explored. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm super excited to be able to hear about the intersection of law, emotion, and the judiciary, which I don't think we've had a conversation <laughs> about those particular intersections. And Bree, uh, would you be so kind to introduce Professor Maroney to, to the listeners? Absolutely. And, and I've worked with uh, Terry um, on a variety of pot projects in the past. So I have the honor of also a part of her introduction is saying that she's a friend um, and a colleague. So the official um, introduction um, is that Terry Maroney is a professor of law and a professor of medicine, health and society and the Robert S. and Teresa L. Redder chair of law at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. She's been a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences at Stanford, and she researches the interaction of emotion and law with a focus on the role of emotion in judicial experience and behavior, which I just find fascinating, and is a leader in state and federal judicial education on these topics. She graduated from Oberlin College and NYU School of Law, summa cum laude, clerked for Honorable Amaya Kurse of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit and was a litigator at the Urban Justice Center and at the global firm Wilmer Hale. So Terry, welcome. Uh, so glad you're here with us today. Thank you. It's really wonderful to be here. And so, um, yeah, I, you know, just before we kind of get started, the idea of judges and their emotions and um, I... I think many anybody who is listen, listening to this and those phrases who's been in a courtroom probably has a story to share about <laughs> the <laughs> emotional regulation or that, that lack thereof in the judiciary, but it's not something you hear discussed. And so I'm delighted that we're going to really talk about this today. But Terry, I'm going to start you off with a, with a question that we start all of our guests off just to give us some it's a view into you know, the, 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 our guests and their, back, their background. So are there, were there experiences in your life that's really a driver of the passion you have for this work in general and particularly in the well-being and law of movement? Absolutely. Um, you know, before I became a lawyer, I was a social services professional and also worked in community activism in New York City in the early 90s, almost all around the HIV AIDS crisis at that time. And um, clearly my passion for people and their experiences and what can make their lives better didn't originate during that era of my life, but it certainly solidified during that era of my life. And I, when I faced a bit of a crossroads professionally when I knew I'd reached the level where I wanted to go to grad school and pursue, you know, some, some different kind of work. I re really was choosing between, say, a public health career or a social work psychology career or law. And um, really, I could have gone any of those ways. So what I have done is I, I chose law, but I've circled my way back <laughs> to all of those things. So I've managed to, to do them all at once in some way. So I was always very, very interested in psychology and counseling and what makes people tick, how I can, again, be an agent for positive change in people's lives and in communities. And um, after a, a very satisfying career in as a litigator and then also, you know, as a law professor, have found a way, I think, to weave all those interests together. Yeah, it's, it's certainly an interesting, I, I, I enjoyed reading your career arc, right, which was, you know, law student to law clerk, law clerk to litigator, litigator supplemented with, 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 uh, with, with teaching and then to academia. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, what your reflections on that and, 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 uh, and the impact that you're having. And, and from there, uh, researching the judiciary, how did you get into that particular area? Yeah, those are all good questions. Again, the arc of one's life always looks quite tidy and in the rearview mirror and never looks like that in the living of it. Um, but um, I've described to you one crossroads I took, which resulted in me going into law at all. A second crossroads was once I was a number of years into my litigation career, I really needed to decide, was that what I wanted to stay in for the foreseeable future? Or did I want to move into academia, <clears throat> pardon me, 
And I chose to go into academia for a number of reasons. Um, one is that I found myself always being intrigued by the big issues. Um, and litigation provided me many wonderful opportunities to engage with big issues. I was very lucky in the kind of practice I had, but I, I found that that's where I was happiest. And I thought, well, if I go into academia, I can sort of do that all the time. I also love teaching and wanted to be able to, to build that into my day-to-day -day life. Um, so, so that's the choice I made. I have to say, you know, just like my first choice, it was actually a difficult one because there are aspects of legal practice that I quite miss. And um, I miss the, again, the human element of it, the human stories. So that kind of gets to how I got to researching the judiciary. So there's a long story and there's a short story. I shall endeavor to tell you the short story. Um, when I was still in practice, I had the privilege of working on an insanely interesting case involving a white collar criminal defendant who, as we had discovered, had suffered a very serious form of brain injury from a medical incident. And this brain injury from this medical incident had seriously impaired some of the emotional processing aspects of her brain function. And so she was cognitively and intellectually intact, but emotionally extremely disabled in a way that actually directly contributed to um, the, her, the behavior for which she was a very small part of a very, very large um, uh, Ponzi scheme exactly the kind of thing somebody would do. Um, so working on that case, uh, I became absolutely fascinated by the interaction at the psychological and at the neurological level between emotion and reason. And I became very puzzled about why law, unlike the fields I had been in before, for example, psychology and social work, why law had this very entrenched, very strange idea that emotions and rationality are separable and opposing forces, and that law existed for the purpose of privileging one at the expense of the other. I thought that was weird. I thought, um, you know, to use a technical term, it didn't match up with anything I knew about human behavior and human life and what creates a good and flourishing human life. And the more I read about the science, I realized that I wasn't um, alone in that. And if anything was alone, it was law that sort of held on to this very irrational idea about, about the role of emotion. So when I went into academia, that was the first thing I started writing about. And it's sort of like a minor hits a vein. I hit that vein and I've literally just never left it. And as I've gotten deeper and deeper into it, just because it's such an incredibly rich vein, um, to say, what are all the implications for the legal system, for legal theory, for legal practice of us believing some version of a big lie, right, mm -hmm. about the way humans function? What are all the implications of that? I mean, that's, that's the work of many lifetimes for many people. I'm just sort of doing my bit. Mm -hmm. And as I continued on that vein, the bit that I found that has been the most personally satisfying has been judges. Um, that I realized that if, if there's a big lie going around about emotion, reason being separable and emotion being the enemy of reason, nowhere is that stronger than with judges and judging. Um, they are sort of the, what historically have been thought of as the paragons of what should be emotionless or, or what I've called the cultural script of judicial dispassion, that the very definition of a good judge is a judge who has eradicated all emotions in the course of his or her work. And, and that just can't be right. So there you go. Uh, that was sort of the medium sized story. But again, I've been in, I've, I've hit that sub vein probably about 10 years ago, and again, just never left it. And it has led me into an incredibly satisfying research agenda, but even more importantly, into very satisfying work with individual judges and with the judiciary, um, which has just really deepened my regard and affection for the profession and my commitment to trying to make them ha live happier, healthy, healthier lives. Um, so Brie, you'll appreciate this, but <laughs> shortly after the 
presentation that you and I were both a part of at a circuit court conference recently, a judge came up to me and said, um, you know what, I'm glad we're talking about this because healthy judges make for healthy courts and healthy courts make for a healthy, fair society. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's it. In a yeah. nutshell, that's my life. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Right. Really. I really, I felt, I felt seen and heard. I said, exactly. Oh. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it, it, it is really meaningful. Um, and just, again, going back to my days as a litigator, there were so many times when I was in the courtroom where I saw the exact opposite uh, going on uh, of what you would expect or would want. And um, you just really have to worry about the impact that it has on people, the litigants who are there and seeing if mm-hmm. this is what the civil justice or the criminal justice system is about. But um, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Let's kind of continue laying things out here. Terry, what, talk to us some more about the research you've conducted of the judiciary. What has been your Absolutely. Yeah. So for a long time, I was just trying to set the theoretical foundation and just trying to bring into legal theory the idea that is so prominent in virtually other every other discipline these days, which is that you can't understand human behavior without understanding emotion. Um, and the end goal is not emotional eradication, that's actually not a sensible or possible or productive target to aim for. So right, this big, this big lie or the cultural script of dispassion is not something that, of course, we can't ever get there, but the trying to get there will do good things for us. The trying to get there actually does bad things for us. It does bad things for judges. It does bad things for the courts. It does bad things for society because what I bring in my research and research of, of um, primarily from affective science and from the sociology of emotion shows is that the effort it takes for judges to try to divest themselves of a normal range of human emotion is itself counterproductive. So I could have a much longer conversation with you about that, but the, the core message is the most important thing that judges can do is to notice, name, and understand their work-related emotions and not assume that, that, that they're a bad thing. Assume that they're a relevant and interesting thing that should be interrogated um, so you can decide what to do with them. And some you're going to want to try to set aside, some you're going to follow, some you're going to um, try to morph in some way. Again, much longer conversations, but that's the core message. So what I have done in addition to just bringing in research, again, primarily from affective psychology and sociology and showing how it sheds light on on judges and judging about how we should um, encourage judges to notice, name, and understand their emotions. In more recent years, I've moved on from that theoretical foundation and started doing empirical research of my own. And that has two well, I guess I, at this point, I should say three main prongs. So the largest prong is that for a number of years now, I have been conducting a, a national purposive sample um, qualitative interview study with federal judges, both district judges and judges in the courts of appeal, um, where I go and I talk to a diversity of judges from all over the country, you know, with um, different um, geographies, different types of dockets, different number of years on the bench, a diversity in terms of gender, race, political party of the appointing president, et cetera. And just invite them to educate me about their work-related emotions, what, what they are, why they think they have them, what impact they think they have, but in a very dialogic way, um, trying to get past kind of the party line or generalities and get very, very specific. Like let's talk through an instance in which, you know, you um, are unhappy with how you handled a particular situation, for example. So these are very um, deep, I dare say intimate conversations. And I feel extremely privileged to have had so many of them. So that is prong number one, which is a serious qualitative deep dive just into the mental maps that judges have of the kinds of 
emotional experiences they have at work, what they think they're about, how they try to manage them and why, and what impact um, they have on them and their families. So that's prong one. Prong two is more squarely about wellness. Um, and I see these things as quite intertwined. In fact, I came to the wellness game a little late. I was very much about emotion and emotion regulation and judges. I found that I kept going to judicial conferences and being put in um, the wellness programming sec section of the conference. And I'd be like, no, 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 I don't do wellness work. I do sort of high level <laughs> theoretical work about the interplay of cognition and emotion. Then after a few years of that, I was like, oh, no, wait, I am doing wellness <laughs> work. <laughs> So, um, and that's a good thing. So I'll just give you one snippet about why I think this is such an important connection is um, I've focused for a long time on the ways in which judges try to regulate their emotions at work, um, which means why are they motivated to do so? How are they trying to do it? Are they using regulation strategies that have been shown to be productive to decision-making or that um, cause undue cognitive load or counterproductive, et cetera. And it turns out that one of the biggest predictors of burnout, for example, in, um, if you're in, in workers, and I think of judges as a species of worker, is basically how well or how poorly they do their emotion regulation. So I'm drawing on work on the concept of emotional labor, for example. Um, and I started to see that all these things are intertwined. So if judges can notice, name, and understand their work-related emotions and treat them with a curiosity and a value-neutral perspective that enables them to figure out, again, what are they about? Are they appropriate? What should I do with them? Why? And, you know, if they can do that, not only is their judging better, right? Because it sort of saps an unacknowledged, a factor that if unacknowledged could have impact that you're not conscious of, right? It, it, it gives, gives judges more tools with which to choose what they do and do not incorporate into their behavior and decision-making. And it allows emotion to enrich that decision-making in some instances and allows them the space and time to kind of set them aside in other if they can do that, in my view, then they're at far lesser risk of some of the well-being impacts that we worry about, such as burnout, compassion fatigue, um, right? It, it, people who are more granular with their emotions are better at emotion regulation. People who are more granular with their emotions have better health outcomes. These things are interconnected. They drink less. When they're huh. when they're upset, right? So again, I've stopped Ooh. resisting the wellness pull. <laughs> good, now, good. Third, here's the third. Okay, so so here's uh, I've forgotten, lost track now. Am I in prong number two or three? It doesn't really matter. Here's the wellness prong. So what I've started doing most recently is literally to study the judicial wellness movement. Um, I have had a small army of really wonderful research assistants and some great colleagues in the qualitative research core at Vanderbilt. And we have been basically trying to figure out what is this, this quote unquote movement? Um, why, why now, right? Why are we focusing on not just lawyer wellness, but specifically now judicial wellness? Why, what do we think the problem is? Why do we think that? And what are we trying to do about it and why? So we've literally just been like, you know, scrubbing the internet for any and all evidence of pamphlets, conferences, articles, YouTube videos, like programs that, you know, judicial education seminars about judicial wellness and, and um, also interviewing judicial wellness leaders and are trying to figure out what is this movement, what's it trying to do and why, and mapping that data onto wellness research to see if there are obvious gaps or areas of growth. So that's been a lot of fun. Wow. That's fascinating. Awesome. Listen, I wanted to ask you, Terry, just a, a little bit digging down uh, in the specific area around compassion fatigue, which is also yeah. 
known as secondary PTSD. Mm-hmm. My work secondary in, trauma, yeah. Yeah, in my work with the judiciary um, and education, et cetera, that seems to be a really big topic. And, yeah. and can you unpack that a little bit about a little bit what it is and what you are seeing within the judiciary these days? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't want to make any grand claims about where the judiciary in general is with compassion fatigue, but I, I definitely believe it to be a problem for many and a severe problem for some. Um, so the, the way I think about it is very similar to what you just said, Bree. It's a, a secondary form of trauma. It's sort of like a contact trauma. And those sorts of things that I hear judges talk to me about that are relevant to this, I think, are, for example, a lot of them talk about um, being exposed to really traumatic evidence. And think about the role of a judge. Let's think for a moment about trial judges in cases that might involve traumatic evidence, which could be in a civil case, like with a gruesome injury, or it could be in a criminal case. Um, For example, a lot of judges are exposed to um, direct evidence of extreme child sexual abuse and child pornography. So the role of a trial judge is to look at all that stuff and figure out what can and can't go to the jury. And part of that determination is how traumatic is this going to be for the jury? Like, is it going to be so, so overwhelming that they can't get whatever the intended informational value is out of it? Um, well, in order to make that determination, the judge has to look at, her, at it herself. And then she has to guess based on her own level of shock and trauma what the average juror's level of shock and trauma is going to be. So it's literally a job. That's just one example, but it's a job that literally requires you to become traumatized so that you can do your job. Um, that's a really hard thing to put on normal human beings. And there's, you know, a lot of judges, so that's just one example, but a lot of judges say the hardest thing about what they do, and this goes for trial and appellate judges, is just being exposed to how broken the world is. And they often say things like, I see people at their worst. I never hear a good story. Everybody loves, uh, federal judges love doing naturalization ceremonies because it's such a happy day. Um, State court judges love to do adoptions, like, you know, consent adoption because they finally get to do something good. It's just a, it can be a real grind. I hear judges say, you know, I basically like process evictions all day and I can't do anything about it. So, so it's a combination of requiring the judge to have emotionally difficult experiences. It's being exposed to a very disproportionate the negative account of human reality, because most reasons why people are in court are not good reasons. Um, somebody's, somebody's usually very unhappy. And then the sense of frustration that can kind of be the nail in that coffin, I think, that, and I can't really do anything about it. You know, I can't solve, you know, the problem of child pornography. I can just handle this one case. I can't really solve the housing crisis, all I do is sort of inflict pain by processing evictions and I have no choice. So I think that's the danger zone for judges is that if they're getting those negative inputs without any opportunities to feel elevated or to feel a sense of agency, I think that's when you get into compassion fatigue. And that can that can just make people kind of shut down. I mean, they... Um, one judge who was interviewed by some colleagues of mine in Australia at one point said, you have sort of a choice of remaining open to it all, um, which you can't do because then your, your emotions are essentially too raw at all times, or just growing a skin on you thick as, thick as a rhino, in this judge's words, in which case you can't be a good judge because you've lost the feeling for humanity. So there's this feeling of rock and hard place. Wow. And I'm interested in the third way, what's not the rock and what's not the hard place. How can you notice, name, and understand the things that are hard and process them and think about them and work through them in a way that allows you to be healthy um, and to do your job well, but also take care of yourself well. All right. We're, uh, let's, take a, let's take a quick break right here. I think, you know, 
Terry, I think you've done a wonderful job kind of setting the table about all the different areas that, that you've been involved with and, and I'd love to kind of continue to, to drill down in the second half about, you know, kind of where do we go and, and, and what you found and, and what you would advise as we think about the, you know, the confidence in the legal system is so important in terms of the, you know, the, the wellness of our judges to the, 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 confidence, the public's confidence in, in, in its effectiveness, right? And I, I just love the work that you're doing. I can imagine that you're, that you're not, uh, that there's not a lot of people doing what you do, which is, I think, another really interesting part of <laughs> that of, is uh, true. Of who <laughs> I you wish you were and, more. And Maybe they'll that. hear this podcast. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So let's take a quick break. Meet Vera, your firm's virtual ethics risk assessment guide. Developed by Alps, Vera's purpose is to help you uncover risk management blind spots from client intake to calendaring to cybersecurity and more. I require only your honest input to my short series of questions. I will offer you a summary of recommendations to provide course corrections if needed and to keep your firm on the right path. Generous and discreet, Vera is a free and anonymous risk management guide from Alps to help firms like yours be their best. Visit Vera at alpsinsurance.com forward slash Vera. All right, welcome back. And we are joined by Professor Terry Maroney uh, from Vanderbilt University. And, uh, and we are exploring kind of law and emotion and the judiciary. And, and Terry, I want to I pick up a little bit about just kind of how you see y- your own personal role. Obviously, you've done a lot of work as you've done. You know, you, you're, you're working to understand the forces that are affecting judicial effectiveness, right? And ultimately confidence mm-hmm. in the system. Do, do you see yourself as an insider or outsider to the wellness movement as you've observed do you see yourself as an as an advocate uh, after you after you've conducted the research are you building the trail map to a to a, a to a better judicial outcome and a, and, a, and, a, and a better way of going about the work from the bench I'm just kind of curious of how you see your mm. own I mean you, you, you I, I just love the fact of why what got you involved in this movement that's to help people. And I I, I certainly can see that the way that you're going about it is a very interesting one in which there can't be many others in your space who are actually doing what you're doing. Yes, that's true. And again, I I wasn't joking when I said I hope some people join me after hearing this podcast because we need more people um, in in this strange little world that I inhabit. But so to answer your question, though, Chris, like, can I just choose all of the above? I mean, there's not a thing you said that I don't identify with in some way. I mean, I am an insider um, to both the lawyer slash judge well-being movement, and I'm an insider to some degree within the judiciary because I think I've earned their trust and they've earned my respect, and and I work directly with with courts and with judges on trying to strengthen. Um, capacity for judges to be able to notice, name, and understand their emotions in service of being better judges and more satisfied people. Um, and I'm, sometimes I'm a bit like an embedded anthropologist, some, but I think one benefit of being a scholar, in addition to all those other things, is I'm very, very committed to correct paths which sounds perhaps a little opaque. So let me say what I mean. I do not want to be in a position of advocating well-being practices, for example, that are not productive in the way judges need them to be productive. Or I'm not interested in sort of forcing a particular account of how judges' emotions ought to infuse their work and their work product. I think it's very important to actually have that academic distance to follow the evidence and to follow the stories and try to seek what's true. Um, And I think that's something that scholars can really bring to this field is saying, let's not assume, for example, that I take a random example that conventional anger management sessions, um, quote unquote, work, or that they're going to work for judges with anger regulation problems in the way that will be most productive for them and best for the courts and best for um, public trust in the judiciary. Do we know that? I don't think we know that. So I I would like to know that. I'd like to know what 
works. And in order to know what works, you have to know what you're aiming for, right? What is What do we see as the new model of the good judge if it's not the person who's divested of all emotion, but a person who is conscious of his or her emotions and uses them in certain ways and not in others. That's a more complicated view. And it's not completely obvious what it is. So, so I'm giving a long answer to a short-ish question, which is who am I <laughs> in these spaces? And I think I'm, I'm a fellow traveler. I think I'm an advocate for things that increase the public's faith in the courts because the courts deserve it, right? I'm not interested in artificial inflation of their brand, but I am absolutely in favor of helping the public see what it is that they do and what they do well and help them do it better. Um, but I'm also just an academic who wants to make sure that I'm not, and that we're collectively not just kind of following well-worn paths assuming that certain things are or are not true, certain things will or will not, quote unquote, help in certain ways, just to bring that level of discipline and some distance to it. So yeah. yes, all of the above. Yeah, but based upon your research, though, it certainly feels like you would be at the potential epicenter of also uh, being helpful in writing the prescription. Is that fair to say? Um, I mean, I hope that's true. And again, this is where it's an all of the above answer. You know, I do work specifically with courts to help them implement real changes and real things. Um, I talk to real judges and groups about how, for example, to help their appellate court achieve a higher level of productive collegiality, which requires a lot of emotion regulation in a group, right? And, and avoiding toxic behavior patterns, et cetera. So um, not all academics sort of make that journey into the helping to to write and implement the solution, but but I do. Again, as long as I always can feel comfortable that I haven't talked myself into something without adequate basis, or that I'm not sort of pushing an agenda without real things behind it, as long as I'm not crossing that line. I think that's really the best and highest use of, of that scholarly set of skills, the discipline and the distance. I mean, what are, what are we all here on earth to do really, if, if not to try to help our fellow human beings do a better job for each other. Right. Mm -hmm. So that, that is my somewhat grandiose hope <laughs> <laughs> for this research is that I have this little sticky, um, sticky note on my computer monitor that I scratched out a little while ago that said strengthening democracy, one judge at a time. And it's a little silly, but it's in some ways that that's how I like to think of myself. That's wonderful. So when you're talking to judges around the country um, and it sounds like you do talk to them about what to do for themselves individually to, su to support their staff, maybe the lawyers that come in their courts, um, what do you talk to them about and how are those messages received? So I definitely want to make clear that I'm I'm not a therapist. I'm not a judge whisperer, right? Um, and and um, that's that's not what I'm trying to do here. But I am somebody who knows. Um, I am somebody who has sits at the center of a Venn di diagram that again, not that many people have, which is I really really understand legal culture and I really really understand courts and judging to some degree. Um, and and I understand affective science and sociology of emotion. So it's kind of translational, I guess, what I do. What I try to do when I'm working specifically with judges or with groups of judges, which is of course more common, um, is try to take lessons, for example, about productive and non-productive forms of emotion regulation. For example, the difference between learning to think about things differently, which leads one to feel differently about them. That's called cognitive appraisal. Um, the difference between cognitive appraisal or reappraisal, which is a very high order, intellectually challenging, but very productive sort of emotion regulation, it tends to, um, again, buy a person a whole lot of perspective on what their emotion is about, gives them room to work with it, helps them distinguish good reasons and bad reasons. It can elevate 
positive emotion, minimize negative emotion. It's, it's just, it's kind of an all around really great emotion regulation tool. Contrast that with suppression and denial, which is actually what we encourage judges to do through our cultural narratives, which are disasters. They, they don't work very well. They don't actually minimize the emotions you want to minimize. Um, and they, they backfire and they eat up all sorts of your cognitive load. They make you, one of my good friends, James Gross, um, an affective psychologist at Stanford, once quipped, um, suppression and denial make you temporarily stupider. And it's true. Um, we don't want our judges to be temporarily stupider, nor do they, right? They don't either, right? So I think what I try to do at my core is I try to take these lessons from the sciences, um, including the social sciences, and I translate them into the context that judges understand, which is the context of their daily work. So we try to work towards identifying moments of work-related emotion that they're experiencing, identifying the kinds of emotion regulation tools that a person can throw at such a thing, educating them about what these different tools are and giving them the data on basically what we're, what's, what's going to work out well for them um, in the long run and why and how can they practice those things. Um, hopefully that, that gives a sense of what I do. Terry, what are, you, what are you seeing in terms of kind of judicial involvement in terms of leaning into the kind of well-being and law movement? Are you, are you seeing mm. barriers and and, you know, if, if so, how, how do you think that we can overcome some of those? And are there generational elements to that? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, it makes me realize I didn't quite, it's connected to the last part of your last question, which I didn't quite answer, which is how are these messages being received? So I think judges are, in my experience, judges overwhelmingly have been very hungry for this kind of information and this kind of recognition it's a weird thing to walk through a very, very important job as a human being um, and yet be treated as if you're not really supposed to be a human being. I think it, it really stifles a lot of judges' ability to interact productively with peers, to reach past the isolation inherent in the job. It's, it, we're, we're not doing judges any favor by treating them as some kind of like super super beings that are supposed to pull off something that no ordinary human being can pull off. And so judges, I have been very surprised. Um, well, I'm not surprised anymore. When I started, I was very surprised just how excited they would get about it. And it wasn't particularly breaking down along any demographics, like judges that I might have predicted would not be open to the message, have been open to the message. Um, because it reflects the reality. Who doesn't crave having their lived experience seen and recognized and give them the space to actually talk about it in a non-judgmental way and, and give tools to, to try to do a better job, be a better judge, be a happier person, right? Do, and so the reception has been great. I, that said, <laughs> that's the sunny part. That said, there are very real barriers. So I would not be telling the truth if I didn't say that there's also a very significant element of pushback. Um, though, again, I, I don't personally experience a lot of it. Um, the people who come to my workshops, for example, either choose to be there, so they're a self-selected group, or they're forced to be there and they just don't say anything about it. And, you know, they just walk out of the room and think, well, that was a lot of bunk, right? So I'm, I'm often not exposed to the pushback personally, but judges tell me about it. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Once I was doing a, a very small workshop with a particular court. Um, so I was basically at a court retreat and I was doing an emotional granularity session basically um, and presenting data on the kinds of emotional work-related emotional experiences that judges have giving a lot of examples and stories. And it can get pretty sad. It's like, you know, here are the things that are making people sad. Here's what disgusts them. Here's what, why they're angry. This is when they feel hopeless, et cetera. Um, and at one point in the granularity session, one of the judges, now keep in mind, this is a small group, I think it's fewer than 20 people, all of whom know each other very well. 
just shouts right in the middle of me saying something shouts what is the point of all of this like just (laughs) yells it out (laughs) he just could not tolerate it for one single second right um it's a little you know I took it and took it in stride and I treated it as as an interesting moment and I said you know what that's a good question what is the point of this folks and um what happened then was thought was one of the best discussions that we could possibly have had because the other judges were so mortified that he had done that, that they were like, here's why this is important because we really need to notice what we're feeling, you know, and they sort of taught themselves, you know, what I was, what I was trying to teach them. So that was, that was a very dramatic moment of pushback. Um, More broadly, you know, judges talk to me about how there are a lot of their judicial peers well, I'll tell you, one said to me once, like, I would talk to you, meaning me, I, this is an interview, I'll tell you all these things, but I'm never going to tell the judge down the hall. I just wouldn't do it. I don't want to be perceived as weak, or as squishy, or as flawed, or, you know, it's like, I'll talk to you, but I won't talk to them. And that, that's, I think, kind of the deepest form of pushback is when you don't feel like you can have honest, supportive conversations with your peers who are the only other humans on the planet who know what your job is like, right? right. Um, and that's, that's, I think, the deepest barrier that I'd like eventually to see completely dismantled. Yeah. Well, we certainly appreciate uh, we, have, we have just a, a couple uh, minutes remaining, uh, Terry. Do, do you feel like the the, the the judiciary understands the impact and the role that they have had and can continue to have on this movement as a, as a whole. I mean, obviously Bree was at the forefront of getting our report in front of the chief, the conference of chief justices, which I think was a really big deal in terms of catapulting this movement. Do, Do you think that they, as a, as a collective group understand how important this is to the future of the profession? Uh, yes and no. I mean, one, it's it's hard to say anything about the judiciary as a whole, um, especially in a federalist system like we have. I mean, we have so many different types of judges spread out and so many different types of judging. Um, and so it, I'm always loath to group together, you know, judges with wildly different jobs and, who work in wildly different places, right? So it's, in, and we're talking tens and tens and tens of thousands of, of people. So that's my huge caveat, as I would never say the judiciary blah. That said, I have definitely seen a sea change among both the state and the federal judiciary that there is absolutely an increased awareness of the, pardon me, the need for wellness um, programming and the need for a broad range of wellness support. And I think that's because of not just the amazing work that y'all have done with building up awareness of lawyer well-being, but also just uh, pioneers within the judiciary. So I, I would be remiss, for example, not to call out the wellness committee of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, which in the federal system is really the pinnacle of a court that kind of got it early and leaned in early and has continued to do just terrific work. And people look at them as a model Mm. Um, and that's starting to proliferate. Has it proliferated completely through the federal judiciary? Of course not. Um, But it's, you don't hear anybody making fun of it anymore, which you would have as long as recently as five, 10 years ago. On the state level, again, um, I have seen even more movement in this direction, often as a outgrowth of what started as say a lawyer um, assistance program or a LAP and is now a judges and lawyers assistant program or a JLAP, you know, which is a really important move. And again, there have been some states that have really been leaders in this space, some that are still kind of catching up, but absolutely, I think, especially as, you know, public attention just continues to be focused on the courts, Um, more and more court proceedings are being recorded. It's so easy to find evidence of, you know, for example, anger displays by judges on YouTube. I wrote this article years ago called Angry Judges, and 
had these research assistants who I basically said, go on the internet and find me, you know, salient examples of judges losing their temper. And, you know, we couldn't even keep up with the volume of it, right? Because our culture loves that stuff. And it's terrible for, for the image of the judiciary, right? That we, that we love that stuff. So I feel like there is more attention now to the human beings in these positions and sort of a recognition that when they're sort of regulating their emotions poorly um, and has very negative impacts, not just on them, but also on, on justice and on the, the fairness of our court system. Um, I think courts sort of live in some fear of having such an incident within their system um, because again, it's, it's obviously bad for the litigants, but it, it's just bad generally I think there have also been quite a lot of cases, you know, of course, have had to confront colleagues who are experiencing, say, severe cognitive decline, but aren't realizing it and don't really shouldn't be hearing cases anymore, but they are. It's a very delicate situation. Um, so, yes, the short answer yeah. is yes, judges and, and judicial leaders see this and they want to make sure that judges are being given every single opportunity and encouragement to live the longest, happiest, healthiest lives they possibly can because their individual flourishing is crucial to the court's flourishing, which is crucial to our societal flourishing. These things cannot be separated. The one grows from the other. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we've been joined today by Professor Terry Maroney. Uh, and Terry, we, again, thank you so much for your insights and your research and your uh, the work that you're doing in the judicial environment. And obviously when you go to work every day and your professional mission statement is strengthening democracy one judge at a time, that's a that's a pretty cool uh, <laughs> lifelong pursuit uh, like for it. sure. So um, again, Terry, thanks for joining us. Uh, that wraps up a three-part series on uh, the research and scholarship side of, of, of well-being. And, and I think uh, Bree and I are talking about moving into the diversity, equity, and inclusion side uh, of well-being as we head into the new year. So again, thanks everyone for joining us. And thank you, Terry. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks.